0: Today's episode is brought to you by LAMP Rainierson. LAMP Rainierson provides landscape architecture, planning, and civil engineering services. From community wide master plans to land development, LAMP Rainierson incorporates sustainable design principles and equity in all of our projects. Hello and welcome to the Booked On Planning Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Rouse, Transportation Planner with the Lincoln-Lancaster County Planning Department. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Philip Green, Transportation and Long Range Planner with the Village of Hoffman Estates. We're here to get you hooked on planning through the books that have shaped the field. Let's dive in. Our guest today is the American Planning Association's ethics officer, Jim Peters. He is standing in for Jerry Whites, author of Ethical Planning Practitioner, our book for this episode. Jim Peters was appointed the APA AICP ethics officer in April of 2015. He has more than 40 years experience as a professional planner in the nonprofit, private, and public sectors with a focus on preservation planning. He has been an adjunct professor at the School of Art Institute of Chicago and the University of Illinois at Chicago since 2000, and he was elected to the College of Fellows of AICP in 2014. Well, thanks for joining us today, Jim. Can you start off by telling us what it means to be the ethics officer?
1: Well, historically, the role of the ethics officer had been one of the responsibilities of the executive director of the American Planning Association. And in 2015, when they hired a non-planner to be the executive director, the AICP commission decided to uh, make it a job independent of APA staff, and that's when I was appointed. I guess my uh, job comes into kind of three areas. First, my principal responsibility is to investigate complaints of misconduct that are filed against members of AICP. Last year, we investigated about 28 complaints. Second role is to answer informal inquiries that are posed by AICP members, by general planners, members of the public, and last year, I think we had more than 150 of those. And then finally, I serve as staff to the AICP Ethics Committee, and that's the group that updates the code, creates ethics training for planners, reviews appeals on disciplinary actions, and issues formal advisory opinion. So i work worked with the committee on those issues. I think that pretty much covers it and then whatever comes up.
0: APA does put out a lot of helpful materials on ethics, including the ethics cases of the year. But another great resource is the book Ethical Planning Practitioner. So now I'm going to hand it over to Phil, who's going to ask some questions on kind of your interpretation of the book.
2: Great. Thank you. Yeah, I sat down to read the book uh, ahead of this interview in this podcast recording and I think the thing that really struck me was oh this is really not a book that is designed to just be read you don't just pick it up and read it cover to cover it's a book that's designed to be interactive and and engaged with almost like a an ethics session that you can carry around with you uh and you're supposed to think about your behaviors and how you would engage with the 72 scenarios in the book. So on the topic of behaviors, and as someone who has a lot of experience in, in reviewing a lot of ethical issues in the planning profession, what kind of behaviors do you see ethical planning practitioners exhibiting more often and behaviors that stand out?
1: I also, I think of that book by Jerry Weitz as it's kind of a book of short stories in a way. You know, it's you, you can pick it up at any point and read the different scenarios. But one of the ch- uh, parts of the book that I really liked that Jerry put together was at the very end, the conclusions, where he actually answers that question, what are the discernible traits of an ethical planner? And I think he referred to several other planning books on ethics to come up with that list, uh, Carol Barrett, Marty Wachs, and others. Here are some of the traits. That he put down that I kind of strongly agree with of what an ethical planning practitioner is. First, it's someone who's guided by integrity and a sense of what's right. I mean, that sounds obvious, but that's kind of an underlying thing. It's your personal ethics. It's someone who knows what the local, state, and national laws are and who obeys those laws. But it's also somebody who I think extends their ethical obligation beyond just what's legally required and embraces that obligation we all share towards the public interest. It's somebody who develops the capacity to meet ethical crises and prevents them before they arise, which I think is a really important aspect of an ethical planner. It's someone who obviously knows the AICP ethics code, its principles, its rules of conduct. It's somebody willing to discuss ethical issues with other planners you know, talk among one another and seek advice when it's uh, necessary. And then I think it's somebody who kind of serves as a role model for others, not just other planners, but others who are involved in the planning process of what good ethical uh, approaches to our uh, topics are. And I think Jerry kind of captured that. And I think that was a pretty good list he provides in that conclusion.
2: I found that really interesting. Like say that, that end of the book, you know, the book kind of begins with the premise of there is really no practical how-to to be an ethical planning practitioner. You It is something that you live and breathe and, and learn. Uh, and at the end, he kind of gives you that anyway as a treat. One thing I found interesting at the very end uh, of the book in that section that you referred to then is he, he kind of, as you alluded to, discusses the idea that sometimes you need to go a little bit beyond the code and, and apply some of the more legalistic terms more broadly, especially as practice develops. In your role as ethics officer, obviously you are kind of the point person, as you said before, of handling complaints and concerns and questions. Can you give a little bit of insight into your own applications of the code and and your interpretations of some of those terms used therein?
1: Yeah, because you know, you can take the language of the code, but then sometimes what's it really get at? You know, what are the what's what's permissible, but also how do you interpret different sections? I, I think Jerry also I agree with some of the points he raised. Does the notion of adequate and accurate information, which is our rule one, does that mean it's okay to leave out information? And I think Jerry makes the point that no, uh, accurate information is accurate information, full information. If you leave certain critical things out, you're in a sense violating that accurate information. I get that issue a lot from planners. I hear from planners who say, my boss is saying, leave out certain aspects. It's not important to bring that up. And the planner struggles with the idea of, well, am I serving the public interest if I don't provide the information that the public needs? So I think that's clearly one of the rules that you have to kind of go beyond just the words. Jerry also brings up the notion that several of the rules talk about, quote, planning issues or the planning process. And then he says, does that mean that somebody's involved in zoning or grants doesn't have to follow that rule. And I clearly, that's not the case. The planning process and planning issues are what we as planners deal with, whether it is strictly a plan or whether it's zoning or ordinances. Jerry also mentioned that there were some things that we should change in the rules. And I think the new rules that went into effect January 1st kind of got at some of the issues he brought up. He talked about does salaried employees mean just those who are paid, or is it anybody who does work outside of their work as a planner that could create a conflict of interest? We made some changes to that. Anyway, a num- number of other issues. Oh, one, one that really came up that struck me that Jerry brought up is the rule about, well, I'll call it plagiarism. We, we have a rule that said up until December 31st, we shouldn't use others work to seek professional recognition or a claim. And we had a case last year in which somebody copied somebody else's plan, was charged with misconduct. And then the planner said, yeah, but I wasn't seeking a claim or recognition. I was just doing my job and this is what planners do. We changed that rule to add the word credit so that it's not just to seek professional recognition or claim, but to seek credit for something so that we tighten that up to get more at the point of what plagiarism is. So I think a number of the rules you try to interpret more broadly, you look, think of what the intent is, but in some cases we felt we needed to kind of make some change to the language to get more closely at what the issues are.
0: Quick follow-up question to that. So does APA take a look at the code of ethics and updated on kind of a regular basis, or is it, certain patterns of events or something major happens and it kind of triggers looking at what we have and what needs to be updated.
1: Yeah, I think it's a combination of those. Although if you look at an average, I think our code dates back actually to 1948 when the American Institute of Planners, which was the predecessor organization of AICP, did a code of ethics. And if you look at it, the code got updated about once a decade. So that gives you a sense that maybe it was being updated as people changing issues, you know, as we shifted from more planning consultant oriented to more public planners, which happened during that post-World War II era We've done two code updates in the last five years, and I think that's uh, more an issue of we recognize that the procedural aspects of the code, section C, D, and E, needed a drastic update, so we did that in 2015. And then we came back and we knew that the rules and the aspirational principles uh, really needed a fresh look, and that's what we looked at the last two years. So we've done two code updates in the last five, six years. Whereas normally it happens every 10 years, but I think that was more because the commission felt you needed to break it down into procedures and uh, the actual principles and rules.
2: Actually, I find that really fascinating that you, you bring up that most recent rule change, because having read the, the updated code Kind of prior to reading this book, I, I had that front and center in my mind. And one of the scenarios I read in the book was about a request from a mayor to change or remove some race specific population data. And, you know, the book encourages you to engage with this on your own, but then it does provide commentaries on how maybe you could act in these scenarios. And the solution that Jerry proposes is that you know you don't want to remove data or pre- present an incomplete picture but potentially the race related data could not be singled out could not be h- highlighted in i think it's a comprehensive plan is the scenario how would that scenario play out under the new updated code that has potentially more of an, an eye toward equity
1: yeah i was interesting question, because I think Jerry was saying you weren't violating a rule, but perhaps you were violating the principle about achieving social justice. And that's always a tricky thing for planners, because I think, unfortunately, a lot of planners look at the only thing I have to do is obey the rules. And the principles are just there. I don't know, as a preface or something. Clearly, the principles, our aspirational principles, say we should not eliminate information like that. And it's not just accurate information, but it's planned for the needs of the disadvantaged, promote racial and economic integration. Those are critical parts of the aspirational principles that have been there since about 2005. We've, in the code update, kind of fleshed those out more, tried to make those broader in the principles so that it's not just one section of the principles, but it's multiple sections that talk about that issue of how do we incorporate equity into plans and regulations, and how do we identify the human consequences of our actions? And then also, how do we eliminate historic patterns of inequity? All of that is in the principles, and a good planner will embrace the principles, not just the rules. And so I kind of disagree with Jerry's answer, yes, you probably couldn't have gotten charged with misconduct for uh, going along with the mayor and leaving out that racial information. But you
2: clearly are not being a good planner if you do that so that makes me feel good. That's where I landed on it too. So I'm glad we're on the same page. On, on that topic of, you know, how, how things have adapted and evolved and, and, you know, I think considering a book is frozen in time the second you publish it, right? There's some very forward thinking approaches to this. I want to touch on the concept of social media that, that comes up quite a lot throughout the book. And I think there's a tendency, especially, you know, I'm a municipal planner, especially in that kind of circle, to be a little bit reticent to get involved in social media, because I I think there's a, a general rule of thumb of this could go terribly wrong, stay away from it. But I think especially as time goes by, and especially over the last year or two, we've seen that maybe that need to be on social media might just be unavoidable. What lessons can planners learn to effectively use social media while still being ethical practitioners?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm glad you of your own instincts about trying to stay away from it, because I think that should be our first instinct is caution. We've had a number of ethics cases in the last year involving social media. It's not just a topic of, well, there's some issues here, but it's actually a topic that it has involved some misconduct by planners who have gone on social media on their personal sites and made comments that are inappropriate, that may interfere with the public process. I think my recommendation is we need to embrace social media because it's part of how we communicate. Uh, But it's best, particularly as public planners, to do that as part of the official city uh, social media sites. The city has an Instagram site or a Facebook site or whatever else. Use that don't use your personal social media platforms. That's where you can get into trouble. Uh, a planner recently was suspended indefinitely because of text messages he sent, emails he sent, and things he posted on Facebook that were derogatory, inflammatory, and unbecoming You know of, of what a planner uh, should do. And he got into trouble because he uses personal platforms. If he had done these through the communication staff of the city where he worked, on those platforms, I don't think he would have had those troubles because somebody else would have helped him work on the message. So don't avoid it, but be careful if you're using your personal for any of those roles. I think that's that's where the trouble comes.
2: Yeah, I found that really interesting. I think one of the scenarios that really stuck me for a while was this idea of... Um you know, do you use your LinkedIn profile to connect with development professionals? And is there a, a conflict there because we're all, you know, if we're taking this idea of the planning process more broadly, as Terry recommends towards the end of the book, does that create more conflicts where potentially a more legalistic view of the planning process wouldn't? I found that really interesting.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting about LinkedIn. I, my, my feeling is it's a professional site and you should connect with all types of people. But, a member of the public can use that against you then, oh, look, you're reviewing the plans on somebody, and you're a friend of them well what's what's a friend in the world of social media now? It's just somebody part of your network. Maybe Facebook needs to change that from friend to acquaintance or colleague or something else.
2: Generic connection number three so you know you kind of raise that. Incident that led to the uh, suspension of the the planner there, and I remember hearing about that uh, when you presented your ethics of the year session at our Illinois State conference this year. And it kind of feels sometimes like you know maybe this is is me personally projecting, but you you attend these sessions a, as a practicing planner, you're like, oh well, I'd never do anything like that. And yet we have seventy six scenarios in this book, and and clearly enough work for for you to have a, a full time job reviewing indiscretions there are traps that planners can fall into and end up performing some unethical behavior. So a big thing for me is self-awareness. How can a planner stay self-aware and catch themselves before they fall into the trap of committing an unethical act, breaking a rule, wherever on the spectrum that ends up falling?
1: Well, you know, one of the reasons I had all those inquiries last year, I think that was the record high last year, is there are planners who are facing these issues and want to get somebody else's advice. And that's what I'm here for as ethics officer. If somebody truly is stuck and needs somebody to talk to, that's the purpose of the informal inquiry. I think you can also talk to fellow professionals too. You know, I think sometimes you feel you're all alone in the world of planning and there's no one else who understands what. I'm going through or facing. But, you know, fellow professionals do. People in your network, other certified planners if you're AICP. So I think that's a really good place to start. And then keep looking at the code. I know it seems like a dreary document and and something that you only want to read if you want to get to sleep fast. But, you know, just periodically looking at it, looking through the aspirationals, I think kind of inspires you as why we're planners in the first place. And the rules kind of bring up some of the topics. Every year we put out a cases of the year that also has new scenarios that are all based on real life examples. Jerry has the 76, as you point out in the book. Carol Barrett's book came out a few years before that, has 54 scenarios. We do about a half dozen each year. Those are always good to look at. They're all online. Just kind of to remind yourself you're not alone and the issues you're facing aren't completely unique. I think that's an important part of an ethical planner is just to kind of keep that in mind, keep it in perspective.
2: So it's, it's interesting when you you know talk about reading the code periodically. My first director in the world of planning is uh, the kind of planner that always keeps a copy of the code at her desk and, and refers to it pretty often. And you're right, that is inspiring. It's good to know that there are other professionals who, who take that on board and, and think about it often. Me personally, I'm in the process right now of preparing to take the AICP exam at the end of this year. And one thing that I noted as I started my process of, of getting ready for that was that a lot of study guides, a lot of common uh, advice is leave ethics till last. It's kind of an easier section. You can just take it and, and be ready for it with taking that last. But I feel like Jerry's book and the conversation that we're having here really highlights for me that ethical behavior and thought should maybe be a baseline that permeates everything we do. So would you agree with that advice for AICP candidates or would you maybe reframe that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's interesting that I don't remember that advice when I took it. It must have come out after that. I think a lot of those study guides were maybe written before the exam change a couple of years ago. The number of ethics questions, I think, doubled in the past couple of years because I think the commission and the exam committee felt studying ethics was more important than it was given attention to. It's at least as important as studying planning history. And I love planning history, but there ought to be more ethical questions, I, I think, than history. And I think that's been done. Yeah, I think it's it's something we ought to study up top, and then do your uh, other study guide, and then come back to it at the end again. You know, I think the ethical scenarios and the studying of those helps also inform the other parts on the exam. Uh, those scenarios are are all based on real life situations that planners face, and that's what we're supposed to be studying as part of training for AICP, is refresh ourselves on you know, some of the techniques and issues of planning. Yeah, I don't think it ought to just be a last minute thing. If it is, you you might uh, fail 10% of the exam.
0: Yeah, and I, I was one that took the old version of the exam before it changed. So I'm curious, what types of questions relate to ethics? Is it kind of the scenario based and you have to kind of interpret the best approach to that scenario? Or is it memorization of what is, you know, a certain principle or fact?
1: Yeah, well, it's a mix. My memory, and it's been a while since I looked at all the questions together, is that about two-thirds of them apply to the rules and principles. But there is about a third, if my memory serves, that ties to the procedures, you know, like What do you get charged for misconduct for? Can you get charged for principles? Can you get charged for a rule? Who can file a complaint? who can appeal a complaint, things like that. So it's not the nitty-gritty of procedures, but it's, I think, the things that planners need to know because another planner may ask you about it. The scenarios, that's been always tough with the exams. You probably remember anybody who's taken it uh, or studying for it. How do you answer the scenarios? A lot of them are areas of gray. So we've tried to write the scenario questions so that it gives you a chance to kind of reflect not have to have the right answer, but what are the incorrect answers, if that makes any sense. You know, if you eliminate the incorrect, you'll find the right. But those have always been challenging to write because scenarios are, there's a lot of gray in those. As anybody who's gone to ethics sessions and heard some of the cases of the year, the arguments afterwards are all about, well, what if this, what if that? There's a lot of things that can factor into the right or wrong answer ethically.
2: I think, uh, yeah, so many advice that I've been given from various professionals has always been there's a correct answer and then there's a more correct answer and you should always go with the more correct answer. And I think that's probably good advice for life as well as it is for exams, right? That's a good uh, answer there, yeah. And uh, I think that responds to ethics in general, right? That's, there may never be a a 100% correct answer, but there's always a a most correct answer. You know, on on the note of AICP and and accreditation, there's some scenarios in in this book. And I think that a lot of planners, especially those in the municipal field can identify with this, that sometimes you're put into a scenario that potentially is driven by the unethical behavior of a non-planner, another professional or a non-AICP accredited person. What support structures exist? What what can a, a planner do in those scenarios when the formal reporting mechanism isn't available to them?
1: Yeah, that's a good point because I think what was discussed in some of those, I think that one of the scenarios Jerry talks about is a city attorney who is is saying, here here's what you should do. And it goes against what a planner thinks is ethical to do. I think a planner has to use their code of ethics as, uh, you know, something they tell their supervisors about in those situations. That in the same way as a lawyer can get disbarred for doing something that's against the law, a planner can get their certification suspended, revoked, or a letter of admonition if they violate and somebody brings a complaint. And we just have to remind our supervisors and those we work with that we have a code of ethics. You know, our underlying principle of our code of ethics is to serve the public interest. And and if you're serving the public interest, you need to have an enforceable code that holds you to that. You know, uh, city managers have a code, the ICMA code of ethics, and they follow that. And they're very disciplined about not doing something that would violate that. So we have to just remind our city managers, our attorneys and such that we also have a code of ethics. A lot of planners have downloaded a certificate that kind of shows the key principles. And we've revised that since the new code and put it on your wall. And when somebody, I don't know if people are going to come into offices ever again, but they'll see it on their Zoom right behind your head there, Philip. You know, just put your code right behind there. And when they're looking at it, go, what's that about? I just think we have to remind them.
2: Yeah. I found that to be a a theme that Jerry brought up from time to time that even, uh, a non-accredited professional, even a member of the public who's speaking at a public hearing, it is absolutely within your rights as an ethical planner to educate them and make them aware of, of some of the requirements of engaging in that process and the need as a, as a person, as a human being to act ethically and, and engage with the process in good faith. And I personally, I found that reassuring because sometimes you can sit there a little bit dumbfounded in those situations and go, well, can I tell you not to act that way? So I I found that advice personally really, really helpful.
1: Yeah. And I think also as we train, you know, planners are involved in the training of our plan commission. And one of the things that in a training of a good plan commission, they should be trained about ethics as well. They should be trained about what the law says and such. And APA has a set of principles for ethical behavior for plan commission. We ought to, when we train our plan commissions, remind them what those principles are. They're not the same ones we use as professional planners, but if they have ethical principles they follow, I think they'll have more respect for the ethical principles that we follow.
2: I do find that interesting. I volunteer as a plan commissioner trainer here in Illinois. And, uh, you know, in that and in my own interactions with various playing commissions, I I find that questions of ethics tend to create the most discussion. And I don't know whether that's as Jerry identifies at the end of the book. The primary question in everyone's mind is always going to be, am I breaking the law and could get into trouble for this? But I think there's just something innately interesting, especially to volunteer playing commissioners. There's something innately interesting about, am I doing the right thing? Because clearly most of the time they volunteered for that position because they want to enact good in their communities and they want to do that in the right way. I guess my final question is as someone who has presented ethics sessions repeatedly. And you know, this book at the very beginning identifies itself as a resource for sessions such as that. In your experience as, as someone who does that regularly, what scenarios tend to create the most conversation and, and what you know we, we identified and discussed before those areas of gray and correct versus more correct? What kind of stumps people and, and what gets people talking?
1: There's a few, and both in what I get as uh questions and what I hear when I go to conferences that generates I'd say the number one is loyalty to employer because there's a lot of aspects to that. you know we have a principle that says we should be loyal to our employer unless we're violating the law. Well, there's a big area between those two extremes in a way, incomplete information is that a violation? Uh, hiding facts, uh, the whole working in the political process where ethics can be a flexible type thing. What does uh, an alderman or elected official want? What does the city manager want? What kind of pressures? And planners are stuck in the middle of that. And what is our role as ethical planners in, in that arena? I'm getting a lot of questions this year on changing jobs, of the workforce, from what I read, are going to be changing their jobs this year. That's an amazing number. A lot of planners are moving from the public to the private sector or vice versa. How do you avoid conflicts during that process? If you're a public planner and some developer would like to hire you and you're reviewing their plans right now, is there a conflict from the moment they say they'd like to talk to you about a job? And how do you Pull yourself out of that situation without creating a conflict or getting yourself fired early because you're looking for other work. I'm seeing hearing a lot about spousal conflicts. A lot of planners meet their partners through the profession. And if you're both in the planning field, there can be conflicts there. So that's a big issue, particularly in rural areas where there may be limited options and you're bound to come into conflicts. I've heard some questions last year, and this is a big debate about personal property. If you own property and you're doing work on a comprehensive plan and your property's in it, is that a conflict? How do you resolve that? And then the perennial one is gifts, you know, getting gifts at the holidays, uh, gift baskets, sports tickets, invites to events and things like that. Those are always, I think I listed about a half dozen things, but those are always the big topics. And there's a lot of shades of gray in all of those.
0: On the topic of gifts, it always comes up at conferences, especially the national conference, when you have all these different consulting firms hosting little parties and inviting you to have food and drinks on them. And there's always a discussion among staff of should we go? Is that okay? Is that beyond the $5 limit that we're supposed to you know receive as public officials?
1: Yeah, and that's a topic too. Is that uh, it varies from state and city? You know, some states say nothing. Some states say you know twenty-five dollars, or if you can wear it, it's okay. I've seen that language. You know, get a hat, it's okay, but if you get a sports ticket, it's not. Yeah, it's a range of issues, and I think you just have to look at it. You know, individual or case by case. If it's an open invite to anyone, I think it's fine. If it's an a invite-only offer to municipal planners, that may be a different matter. You know, I think just uh, asking the question and thinking about it is a big part of being an ethical planner. Stopping and thinking is really important.
0: The last question is kind of a catch-all. What do you think is the most important thing that our listeners and readers should take away from this conversation today?
1: Well, I, I think number 1 because we've just passed this revised code is read the new code. The aspirational principles are reorganized. I mean, we had three categories before, we have five now. Uh, there's been a number of things expanded on that, and I think it's important for everybody to read that. The rules have changed a little less, but they've been regrouped and things. So, I definitely do that. I'd attend You know, conferences, we have a requirement of one hour of ethics training every other year. That's not a lot when you think about it. So I think it's incumbent on everybody to, you know, pick up the code periodically, pick up a book like Jerry's or Carol Barrett's and look at some scenarios. You can go on the website and refresh yourself on some of the scenarios used in the cases of the year. That's always helpful. Talk to other planners about issues. Little harder now that we're not in the office and and socializing as much to do that, but I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind. And uh, you know, I and I'll I'll add one thing since this is a thing on planning books. I just read recently that the guy who created Parks and Recreation and The Good Place, and that that's a book about ethics. You know, it's not about planning ethics, but it's about personal ethics. So I think there's all sorts of ways that we can kind of be thinking about this, and uh, you know you don't have to read the great philosophers to understand what ethics is in our day to day life. So I keep that in mind, and um, yeah, talk to others about it, and and don't think you're alone. I think that's the other thing is we all all think, boy, we're the only one facing this. Nobody else understands it. So that's why there's a network of colleagues and such that we just need to keep active.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Jim, to talk about the ethical planning practitioner.